Hello, everyone. I'm Al Daldegan, creator and producer of the Leaders, Innovators, and Big Ideas podcast, supported by Rainforest Alberta. This podcast showcases the people who are working to improve Alberta's innovation ecosystem. Hey, loyal listeners. I'll be hosting this episode myself. I've been involved in software development for more than 25 years. I've started companies, led companies, and worked for companies, doing many different things. I'm honored to be considered a leader in Alberta's innovation ecosystem, and I give back as much and as often as I can. When I'm not working or podcasting, you'll find me pursuing my passions of photography, crypto investing, and woodworking, along with the occasional round of golf. Join Heiko Peters and I as we talk about the early days of computers and how great things are growing in Rainforest, Alberta. Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Leaders, Innovators and Big Ideas podcast for Rainforest, Alberta. Today, my special guest is Heiko Peters. Heiko is a technophile entrepreneur and problem solver, and he's currently the COO, CTO and co-founder of Aletheia Medical. Thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. I know we were long overdue. So yeah, so let's actually talk a little bit about that. But actually, before we go there, what so you have a long history of doing actually, our histories are very similar in some respects, you started out as a software developer, and then you became kind of a project manager, and then you moved into some sort of leadership roles and such. Why don't you tell me a little bit about kind of where it all came down? from where you where were you born and kind of how did you get into kind of computers and stuff sure going way back yeah so born and raised in calgary so pretty rare these days but it, it is i'm one of those so born and raised in calgary where did i get into computers i had a commodore vic 20 when i was young but i wouldn't say that's where i got into computers because that was a big pain in the ass to use so like, you know, I had like this, I remember I had this memory card that I think gave me like 128K of extra memory, you know, a cartridge you could put in and I had a tape drive. And so you'd have to like get a cassette and like load and then you play the cassette for like five minutes and then it would finally find the application and load it. So yeah, that did not get me into computers. Uh, I would have to say I started to get into computers in high school. Actually, I started hanging out with friends who had computers 286 era. And so, yeah, so I started getting into that into them. Then I had a friend who had whose dad had a 300 baud modem, uh, but he just had a green screen terminal. And I had super VGA. So we'd go to his house and download stuff on his 300 baud modem. And then we'd put them onto a bunch of three and a half inch floppies and run over to my house and play the games with my super VGA. So yeah, so those those were kind of like the days when you had like pins and interrupters and jumps and you had to like, you actually had to know how your computer worked, right? Rather than plug and play. So that's kind of when I got into computers. So then that was like grade 10. So when I went into university, I went into, originally I was going to become a lawyer. Don't ask me why, but that's what I, because I was like, you know, that's like the the main staple, you know, doctors, lawyers, accountants, right? So I was going to become a lawyer because I didn't even know engineering existed at the time. I honest to God didn't even know engineering existed because my parents were like tile setters and hairdressers and they, you know, like, so, but anyways, so I didn't even know engineering existed. So I went into a management degree and I'm like, well, I like computers, so I'll do MGIS. Uh, And so that's kind of where I started doing it. Uh, and then I got into, that's where I kind of got into real programming other than just like some basic and like 
DOS shell scripts to try to get your computer to load faster because you didn't have enough memory uh, for Wing Commander. So, so that's where I kind of get into programming. And I was taking the same weeder courses as the uh, comp sci students were and doing really, really well at them. Uh, so, so yeah, so I started doing that there and then I was 0.01 GPA point away from getting into management. So they had a big influx of students applied to the faculty of management. And normally I would have got in the year before, the year after I would have got in, but that year I did not because they had this big influx and I was 0.01 GPA. Yeah. And I, yeah. So I went and talked to the Dean and she was like, well, I already had to actually let in 50 extra students. So I can't, let, so I can't let you in on this 0.01 GPA. Right. So, so I'm like, that kind of sucked. Made my mother super happy. So I went to SAIT and actually took their computer technology program and kicked butt there and then started working. So for TransCanada, I started my internship at TransCanada Pipelines and started working there doing actually mostly desktop support, but I got to do a little web app while I was there back in the way back in the days. And then, so finished up my, my computer technology degree at SAIT or diploma, I guess it would have been at SAIT. And then I started working at TransCanada full-time. So my first job was working for pipe. Well, actually most of my career was spent in the kind of pipe integrity side of things. So on the IT department supporting the pipe integrity side of things. So my first job was actually to, to do support for Unisim, which was a Fortran 66 simulator that they, a pipeline simulator. So basically every morning they look at the weather, they look at the nominations, how much gas they wanted to flow and how much gas they wanted to sell. And they basically type it into this text file. And, and then Unison would figure out how much gas they could flow that day, right? And, and then that would, you know, feed gas marketing to determine how many noms they could take and nominations they could take and how much, like how much gas, because the weather really is dependent on how much gas they can flow and, you know, which, which pipes were open or which pipes were closed for maintenance and all that kind of stuff, right? So built, so it was, so it was, that was a, so here we were going in school thinking about how they weren't teaching us modern enough technology because we were only doing standard C instead of C. And then my first job is Fortran 66 and Fortran. So 66 is the year that that Fortran came out, right? So we're dealing with another language now older than me. But so that was, that was interesting. And, and actually it was so old that it still thought it used punch cards. So, so it actually had this C wrapper around it that took the text file and converted it back into the punch card format that the simulator was expecting. That's how that's haunted you for years. Yeah. So that was <laughs> that has how I first started. I in my so my my claim to fame for that job was to actually so that was all on a Vax VMS, right? So they had to go into Emacs and like type up these files and all that stuff, right? And so I I ported it out of Fortran 66 into Fortran 77. Ooh. And, uh, and then put a visual basic wrapper around it. So they had things like text edit, like a file with like mouse support that they could like type and like copy and paste because you couldn't do that on Vax VMS back then. So they actually had like, so they could actually use a Windows machine to actually edit their files and like, you know, move around the file and, and do crazy GUI stuff that you couldn't do on a Unix system, right? So. So that was my claim to fame and it actually ran faster too. So instead of being like five minutes a run, it took like a couple minutes a run. So actually it was a mass improvement and usability. Now, horrible code, like it's super, I mean, it was like visual basic binding, like things very, like it was, it was bad, bad. Like, I mean, it was not good, but, but anyways, that was kind of my, my start. And then I got super lucky and moved on to TransCanada's GeoFine team. And the GeoFine team was 
kind of like Google Maps before Google Maps existed for facility information. So, and that was like my early, early days. And that's where I actually got on a really good team. So that's where we started. You know, that's, we were much more progressive. We, we moved out of Fortran 77 to, uh, to modern day languages like Java and we started with servlets, but then moved into JSPs. That was a very forward, progressive team. We were doing agile and that, and that. So that's where I got all into my, my agile and iterative and incremental and, and all that kind of one button deploy and all that kind of cool stuff, which was a long time ago, but still kind of sparkly and new now, somehow 20 years later, don't ask me how, but like I still go into companies that don't do that and going like we did it 20 years ago. It's not that hard. Just goes around, comes around, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just, yeah. It kind of went in fashion and out of fashion and people are like, oh yeah, this agile thing. Tell me more about that. I remember growing up in computers. I mean, we were probably pretty close to the same age, I'd imagine, but when we, it, it went from, you know, the, the mainframes of the dumb terminals to the, the computers with like the smart, smart computer that did most of the work. And then they flip back dumb terminals and, and it just like, it just, it was, it was almost cyclical. It was really bizarre. Yeah, no, when we were, were doing university, you had to go into the lab and go on one of those dumb terminals and log into the mainframe and type up your stuff on your nice, like green screen, right? You're just terminal with green screen text. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, my first couple years. So probably my first, I can't remember, two or five years, I, I was given this like 21 inch, like cathode ray tube. It was like literally two feet deep. Like this bit, it sat in the corner. Like I had to put it in the corner and it was still like sit out two feet from the wall. Right. I like the old Simpsons, like, you know, radiation King. Like I probably have so much x-ray just from that beast pointing out, like, you know, once one and a half, two feet away from my face for like eight hours a day. Right. So, and you know, it was one of those things when you turn it on, it goes, you know, so, you know, you get, you know, you're getting the lights dim slightly, (laughs) you know, and probably casting a shadow on the back wall. That's really fascinating. I mean, a lot of times when you talk to people these days, you know, they can't even remember cassette tapes for that, for music, let alone for loading software onto a computer. It was a, it was a real, really crazy era back then. So then now in a more modern world, I mean, you're one of the earlier rainforest people, right? Yeah. I wasn't super, super early, but I was probably within the first six months, give or take. So I, I didn't go to the original one in Banff and all part of that. I wasn't actually, I don't know even if I was back in Calgary at that time. So I had, uh, I kind of done my Trans Canada. I actually worked there for like 11 years. And then I kind of went away to join Cambrian House, which was the only web 2.0 startup in Calgary, which ended up imploding. And then I came back to Trans Canada as a contractor for a couple of years and then went to PwC and kind of became a management consultant for a couple of years. And then it was either to, it was either go do a secondment with PwC in Amsterdam or move to Vancouver to go work at one of my clients. So I went to Vancouver and worked at one of my clients because my made my wife happier. So, so yeah, so we went and did that. And then when I came back, so I did that, I was in Vancouver for four years. And then when I came back, I wanted to be, I didn't want to go into oil and gas. I wanted to be part of like, because in Vancouver, they don't have that. You're part of the tech scene. So when I came back, I was working for a testing company, PQA, and I wanted to be part of the tech scene. So I attended either it was Alberta Innovates or Adventures, one of the two. And I met Evan, he was a speaker. And then he was out on one of the tables after. So I went and talked to Evan Hugh. Asked him, hey, where can I, you know, get involved in this space? And then he pointed me to Rainforest. So I don't think, so that was like the early days. And then it took me a couple months to try to clear up my Wednesdays at lunch to try to get there because we happened to have exec meetings at that time, but I eventually managed to do it. And then I started, started attending. So back in the days when we still, 
went to Zumwalt Space down in Kensington. Yeah, that was a little, a little bit before my time. The parking was atrocious there, so you got lucky. I got two tickets like there. Anyways, I thought I was legally. I well, sorry, I thought I was legally parked each time, but one time I was apparently too close to the curb corner of the back alley, and then the other time I was in this like. I was accidentally parked in a, a handicapped space. I did not know it. And the five cars around me did not know it either because there was a handicap like at the beginning of the block and one at the end of the block. But in the middle of the block, we were all oblivious. So, so anyway, so that was a pretty expensive. Those were expensive lunch without lunches. <laughs> and you didn't even get lunch to eat. So no, I didn't even get lunch. No. Since those early days, you've, you've been, you've been to rainforest and other related tech events, you become part of the ecosystem. And I think a lot of people recognize you. And I mean, it's about time we had you on the show, I think. But you know, what, what do you remember about kind of the, cause right now, if, if you look at the tech ecosystem in Alberta, it's going pretty crazy. I mean, especially in Calgary and what kind of memories do you have over the past, you know, six years or whatever that you've been involved? Yeah, because I came back six years this month. Yeah, so it has been almost six years. Yeah, it was it was crazy. So back then it was a it was a much different vibe in the beginning because so Zumwalt and Gibson were far more involved as were Evan and Greg, and there was a there was a much different energy then than there is now, at least in Lunch Without Lunch. I think I think the innovation system itself is probably further ahead, but back then there there was just a different energy, and it was much more like founders and people with, we'll say founders and dreamers and big ideas all trying to come together to make something happen, right? Like, and Jim always used to always have this kind of collisions, right? Metaphor. And that was a really cool time, right? And that's what really kind of sucked me in. I mean, you had, you know, like Mayor Nancy would come and speak or like, you know, the ambassador to Silicon Valley would be there or, you know, there'd be, you know, Greg would come and talk about Hyperloop, right? still is not yet to happen but but you know like so there was all this like cool energy right and it was it was really awesome i mean like how could you not be around and want to be around that right so that was that was i mean as a as a tech guy that was like super interesting for me right and super super passionate for me so yeah so i couldn't help but want to hang around and be around like cool people like that doing cool things right so now is Alithia Medical, is that one, is that your first entrepreneur experience thing or? No. So, so Rainforest made me want to, well, that, so my job as a management consultant at PwC kind of put me into tech transformation. So we would kind of like, we kind of worked for what in Europe would be called office of the CIO, right? So we were working with like CIO level type companies to change how they did software for me primarily how they did software development how they ran their tech shop right others would work on other things like it or support whatever but i was mostly focused around agile and development and kind of technology as, as opposed to like it like servers and services and telecom and all that stuff i could literally care less about like security or telecom or service not doesn't interest me but so so i was brought into companies to kind of help them transform but that's a really hard thing to do, especially, and, and I mean, it, it requires a lot of change management and a lot of companies think they want to transform and they need to transform, but it's really hard. And then the, and usually management is the reason why they need to transform, but they like to think it's the employees. And so basically I've become a pain in the ass for them because they hire me to transform. I start pushing transformation. It runs contrary to what they're comfortable with. 
Now, what they're comfortable with is what got them to where they are right now. But anyways, so eventually they get tired of me. And so I got tired of arguing with people to make them successful despite themselves and decided I was going to make myself successful despite myself. So, so I decided, you know, if like the, you know, I, you know, instead of someone else, you know, instead of me telling me, telling them to don't do that because you're going to have a piling, piling steam of horse manure, right. And then them doing it, getting a piling steaming pile of horse manure and go, okay, now you have to fix it. And I'm like, I have to fix what I told you not to Dawson. That's great. Right. So, so yeah, I first started with a thermostat. So I read like read leading startup and I had the smart thermostat idea, which was basically like super cheap. It was the, the goal was to go super cheap, basically just put a box on the wall, not even a screen. Cause like everyone has phones these days Why you need to get up and stare at the wall to find out what temperature it is when your phone is always in your pocket. So, and, and start using more like, moving basically this thermostat into the cloud, right? So instead of having like all this complicated, cause I mean, we had, so I had a house that had like in-floor heating and it had like, so I had forced air furnace and in-floor heating and like the dance that you have to do to try to keep those in like balance when, you know, especially when you transfer from winter to summer and back, like, like it's fine in winter, right? Then, then you're fine. Right. So in winter it's, you know, then, you just keep one, like the in-floor two degrees warmer than the furnace. And then the floor always stays warm. But then, you know, but then you can get like when you start to get in the spring, when it starts to get warmer. And then all of a sudden, like your house is warm enough, but like you have no humidity anymore because the furnace never kicks in. Right. So like you get weird. So, anyway, so I thought there had to be a better way than like if you ever went to the store, back, especially back then. I mean, these smart thermostats and by smart we're talking like an lcd screen with a couple like buttons was you know there were a few hundred dollars and this is when nest was still was just kind of still new and they were still out of i think in version one like they were the new big thing but they were also like three or four hundred bucks right i'm like that's crazy because i mean they're expensive because they were you know you had the design and the architecture and you had the screen and that fancy dial and blah. blah. but i'm like but who like who wants to go stand at a random wall in your house when you could just do it off your phone so the whole thing there was to create, and it was long story short, create a really cheap, like under $50 thermostat. Like I was going to make it for like 15, 20 bucks, sell it for like 50, 75 bucks, right? And just move all the, move all the logic out of these complicated boards and hardware and just move it into the cloud. And that was interesting. That's where I kind of, I first started to run into actually talking about it to like starting to use like so Canada Calgary Innovation Coalition services, you know, trying to get like micro vouchers and starting to really just kind of being on the periphery and talking about the scene to be actually in the scene and trying to do stuff in the scene. And so I ran and then I did Junction 31 with that. But at, so when I was doing that, I also started to get into Evolve You, which I know you're very familiar with, which and so with Greg, Margot and Jill and Larry and myself, we we founded Evolve You. Right. And so Larry and I worked on the technology part of that and created the curriculum for the technology part. I mean, mostly Larry, but had some input with him. And uh, yeah, and then I basically was a uh, program director, executive director, whatever you want to call it. So I spent a lot of time there talking with a lot of, co- and that's I probably what also got me probably best well known is because I spent a lot of time in Rainforest. I spoke up a lot for, so I was a public figure then for and most well known for Evolve You because I would speak up or at the events or, you know, try to get, you know, you know, at the, at the end of Rainforest, when you get to stand up and announce things, I was always announcing the next, you know, demo days or the, the next, 
you know, open house or whatever. Right. So that's kind of where I started to get better known in the community because I started to, I guess, become from a lurker to a contributor. So, and uh, and I know you're more than familiar with Evolve U. So, yep. And they're, they're still running along some, some slight changes since you were there, but bringing the full stack developers out of the, out of the world from wherever they're before, usually engineers of some sort, but it's a great program. Always has been a great program. It's got a good reputation and everything. So that's cool. And then, and then at some point in time, you, you became co-founder of Alethea Medical. So why don't you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, sure. So this was part of the whole rainforest giving back. So as part of the rainforest, so I was, I was still working at Evolve U, but I was starting to wind down a little bit. I was, I was moving on. I was doing a little bit of work with VizWorks kind of, and I was in a bit of a part-time mode with some spare time to myself to work on my ideas, right? Like including the thermostat. And yeah. And so I was just trying to give back. And so I was having meetings. I actually, the impetus was when the Google AI came out or the Google voice assistant came out that could pass the Turing test. I don't remember what it's called anymore, but it had like the vocal fries and it would, you know, you would say like, you'd tell Google to like book you an appointment and it would actually, the AI would call and like make, make an appointment for you. And, it, and people didn't know it was an AI. Right. And that was, I, I thought that was super interesting and I could do some wonderful things in medicine. And so I was chatting with a doctor friend of mine and we we're talking about, I was telling him how cool it was and all the things you could do with it. And he thought it was pretty cool and he wanted to work on a project, but then he decided, actually, that was just way too much work. I don't want to do that. And so, so he passed me to a couple friends of his. And so we were just having conversations with them about AI and, and kind of, and some of their projects and what they possible projects. And we were just kind of like exploring, I guess, kind of giving back, seeing if there was anything interesting out there to work on. And we were having conversations and we were just having conversations on and off. And after about six months, one of them, so it was Raul and Omar and Omar was the doctor and Raul was the student and Raul was like, well, I'm working on this thing on the side also that I should, I should, I should tell you about. And so after like six months, I found out there was this whole other thing he was working on. And he introduced me into, uh, to Dr. Livingstone, who's my co-founder and CMO of Aletheia, which back then we were ENTID. But yeah, so then I started like kind of, I wouldn't say mentoring, but like just kind of giving them advice, I guess. You know, it's free advice, so take it for what it's worth. But so I just kind of had started having that conversation. I was talking with Evan Hugh about it because Evan and I had kind of done some of that AHS conversation. Evan had pulled in Steven. And then, and then Stephen and I thought this was, well, I'm Evan, but Stephen and I thought this was a good idea. So we basically ended up joining the team and becoming co-founders. So yeah, it was just part of that, you know, being part of the ecosystem, just trying to give back. And then an opportunity came back where, you know, I, they had the interest and we had the skills and they needed, they needed someone like us. And we thought the project was cool enough to spend some time on it. So yeah, three years, well, two and a half, three years later, I'm still spending time on it. So that's awesome. Can you tell the audience a little bit about what Aletheia does? Aletheia is basically gives digital diagnostics, workflow automation, and AI to the family physician so that to make their life easier and so that they can get specialist advice for you, the patient, from the specialist in one day instead of six to 48 months. So if you ever like have an earache or like have a mole that you want to get checked or whatever, derms are about six month wait list right now, um, four to six months and, and ENTs are about four years. 
So there's a shortage of ENTs, which Devin is one of them, an otolaryngology. And so, and, and then there's other doctors in between. But if you ever need to see a specialist, it's basically a really long wait. And so we created this platform that includes digital diagnostics. So like, you know, digital otoscope that we have that you can stick in the ear or the nose, or you can use, a, you know, we have a mobile app, so you can use a rear facing camera for, you know, skin or whatever, or, or, and, uh, and then of course you can attach stuff like cardiograms or x-rays as well. And so it turns out that most of the time, if you give like, so if you have an issue right now and you go to your doctor and they don't know what to do about it, they literally type up a letter and fax it fax it to to the specialist and it usually says something like not much better than patient has issue please see patient right like it like sometimes they'll be like yeah you know inner ear canal is you know inflamed pink and swollen and like that's like pretty much most issues right so like the doctor the specialist really couldn't do anything about it but a little bit of structured data and or some medical history and or some digital diagnostics and all of a sudden like 90% of the time they know what it is in a couple seconds. Like they can just look at it, read it. And within like a couple seconds that so they go, Oh, that's a Titus media. Right. And then if they, if they know it's a Titus media, especially with the ear ones where you can like just see a picture of it, they can basically go, okay, I need either an X-ray or an MRI, or I need, you know, or put them on this medication for two weeks. Right. There's a bunch of stuff they can do so they can, so with this stuff, the specialist can respond within 24 hours and usually 70% of the time basically start a treatment. And that treatment might be, I need to see them, but first they need to get an x-ray, right? Or, or like put them on this medication or whatever it is, right? And then 30% of the time, it's like, I need to see them. And some of that time is like, I need to see them Friday. Like this, this is serious. They need to be here Friday or, you know, I need to see them shortly, but because they can see it and they have a better understanding other than, you know, pink and flame slightly swollen, they can triage better, which is huge for them. So the stats, the stats for us have shown that 10% of the time, actually technically 11, 12% of the time, like that referral was just a waste of time. The patient didn't need to go. Yeah, it's an issue, but it's well, it's normal, right? Or it's arthritis or it's whatever, right? So like 12% of the time they didn't even need to go. And then like, 27% of the time, it's like, I need to see you pretty quick. And then 60% of the time is it, it's, it's not major or they can, it, or it can be dealt with remotely. Right. Like, so, so in the end, the stats are 70, 70% of the time, the specialist can help you without ever, ever needing to see you. So you get specialist response in 24 hours instead of 60 to 48 months. Sorry. Long answer to a short question. Yeah, no, that's, that's actually great. I'm glad you explained it in detail because, you know, those, the, the whole thing, like when you go to your doctor and they just, they look at something and they go, hmm, huh, hmm, okay, well, I'm going to send just to be safe. I'm going to send you to the specialist and you just go, okay. And then at some point someone phones you or somebody sets something up or whatever. And you're right. It's like months sometimes down the road. And I know in, in some cases I've, I've gone to a specialist and it's, it's all, it's all cleared up and resolved. And then I go there and it's like, yeah, it was bugging me, but now I'm fine. And they're like, yeah, it looks like it's all good. <laughs> so everybody's time is wasted. Well, and the other thing too, is if it's a real bad problem, what happens is while you're waiting, you end up at the emergency room, right? So like the emergency room is the most expensive way to treat something. Right. And then. And then a little bit, and so like, if you look at costs going to the emergency room, which is like, if you had a horrible earache and you got a 48 month wait list and it's like driving you nuts and you can't sleep, 
you're going to emergency room, then you're going to sit in line for eight hours or 12 hours or whatever it is, because it's non-urgent compared to all the heart attacks that are coming in because of stampede, right? So, so you're going to wait there forever. And then you're like, that's the most expensive tax dollars at work, right? And then down from there a bit is, is a specialist. And specialists are still pretty expensive tax dollars too, but nowhere near as expensive as the emergency room, but still pretty expensive. And then down from there is family physician, which is about half of a specialist, right? So the more stuff we can push, and then we work at the machine level. So we have AIs and workflow automation, and that's like pennies, right? So like the more like we can work at the AI level and at the family physician level, we can drop tons of cost out of the system and tons of wait time and tons of just like discount. Like if you have an earache and you have to wait 48 months, it's either, like you said, going to go away or lead to permanent hearing damage and neither. Well, so best case scenario is it's just a waste of time. Like you're uncomfortable for two weeks, it goes away. And then it's just a waste of time, that appointment. Worst case scenario is like you have diminished hearing. Yeah, it's, or it could have been something worse, like a, a tumor or something pressing against your ear. You know, who knows? And there's been times where like we've gone like that and then and the doctor's been like, yeah, you have to be here on Friday. This is like important, right? So we've, we've found a couple tumors through our platform early, in the early days, right? So we found a couple tumors. So, yeah. so what's, what's the status of the company and your technology right now? Is it still, are you still figuring it out or are you actually in full production now? Yeah, we're in full production. So, so we started, so we kind of started meeting with Devin and Raul in the kind of the spring of 2019, kind of giving them a little advice, kicking the tires, decided this was something interesting to do together in the summer. And then we kind of created, so then in September, I dusted off my dev skills, got into Android development, which luckily is in Java, which is what I had done when I was a much younger man. And, and created it, we created like an MVP, well, with VizWorks help, we created an MVP app and, and then put it into a pilot clinic uh, in November of, of 2019. And so with that actually gave us great feedback because that was really about just being able to take pictures and email them to Devin to do e-consults, right? And turned out with doctors, I mean, the pictures are nice and it gives also patient records. So the doctor, the physician can keep the record. Like, so if you have an earache and you come back in two weeks, they don't have to check, you know, pink and flame slightly swollen, you know, versus how pink and flamed and how swollen was it? Like they can actually just like look at photos and go, okay, you're getting worse or better. Right. So that, so that helps them because it helps create visual patient records so they can compare you then versus you now or this mole last year, you know, versus this year kind of stuff. Right. So that's great. So it creates visual patient records instead of just like kind of vague notes. But so, but what they really loved was actually getting specialist advice. So like the fact that Devin would respond in 24 hours and say, oh, you need to do this. That's what they really found. And so we did kind of a little pivot in the company to focus more on e-consults rather than just solely digital diagnostics and AIs. And so that e-consult is kind of where our bread and butter is right now. And that kind of builds, gives us the information we need to, to create these cool AIs, which hopefully will become like, you know, the Star Trek tricorders, right? So on your on your phone but yeah so now we have about 155 so now fast forward to 2022 we have 155 family physicians on the platform we yeah we make revenue we we're not profitable yet but we're we're 12 people in the company we make revenue and we have customers so yeah yeah so now we're actually doing a raise right now trying to to get more money so that we can 
grow faster. Like right now, we we've got most of everything. I'm sure there's a little polished spit and shine we can put somewhere, but but right now we're trying to raise capital so that we can grow faster. Like we want to expand into BC and Ontario, uh, Ontario and move into the US, right? Which all the investors think is the holy land for medical. <laughs> well, I mean, there's certainly plenty of people and plenty of money down there. Yeah, they spend like 17% of their GDP on healthcare. So yeah, it's just, Canada's something like a 300 and what was it? Yeah, Canada's like a $300 million healthcare market. And they're like almost a $4 trillion. So 300 billion and they're a $4 trillion. Something, the numbers like, so they're like 10 times. It's just ridiculous the money they spend. Well, that's fascinating. Well, I'm glad to see that everything's been going so well. And I mean, you know, every time you attempt a startup, you've got a, a good opportunity. I, what is it? Five to one or something that, that it's going to fail or maybe even 10 to one. I'm not sure. But, you know, to have a good success story like that, that's really, really great to hear and uh, wish you all the best. Is there anything else that we ha- we didn't really cover that we would like to cover before we... Sure. Like, I mean, one of the things about this is all three of those I actually couldn't have done without Rainforest. Without Rainforest, I would still probably be, well, not a nine to five because I was an exec, but, you know, like, you know, working a job for someone else, arguing with them, trying to make them better, right? And so it was really Rainforest that kind of, and the connections I made through Rainforest and that kind of transitioned me to entrepreneur and doing it for myself. And then, of course, gave me the backing. So, you know, the, the funding and all that kind of stuff to do it. Cause I mean, funding, I mean, that's a whole topic on itself. Cause funding in Alberta is not an easy thing. I mean, almost all of it is government to go flow. It's really hard to, there's like a handful of angels, but it's really hard to get money here. Um, but so that is, that is an issue, but that might probably be its own podcast. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a common story in, in Alberta anyways, is that, well, so once you've, once you've achieved your MVP and you're, uh, onboarding customers and you're actually making revenue, then they'll look at maybe investing in you if, if everything is very low risk. <laughs> like if you go to any of the passport events, you'll like, you'll talk to the people, like we talk to people in Silicon Valley where it's actually passe to ask for money now. Like if, if you just don't have a good enough idea that VCs come out of the woodwork and find you, then it's probably not a great idea. Right. Whereas like here you have to beg for money. Right. But anyways, in the States you get like a PowerPoint is worth like 10 million. So they'll, they'll give you a 10 million us valuation, which means 20% of it gives you like $2 million. Right. Like, here in Calgary, it's like, well, okay, so you have customers, you have revenue, you know, you have a product, you have at least some semblance of product market fit. Okay, let's let's go with a four million Canadian valuation, right? And so, like twenty percent of that's what, like eight hundred thousand dollars, right? So, like, so two million US versus eight hundred thousand Canadian, those are completely wildly, and, and one's a PowerPoint, and the other one is like a year and a half worth of blood, sweat, and tears, and bootstrapping, and blah 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 blah, right? So. Yeah, it's a very different market. Well, well, let's hope it changes as as you know Alberta is being is being looked at as the tech capital of Canada, and hopefully that continue the growth here continues strong, and then you know investors start realizing that well, you know you can put your money in some of the traditional things and just basically lo- get nothing out of it, or you can take a little bit of a risk and invest in the next unicorn in Calgary. So. Yeah, there's an interesting thing about Calgary too, is this, and this is what happened at Evolve U was like, so we spent a lot of time talking to industry, obviously to try to get students hired, right. And trying to get them to demo days and all that kind of stuff. And 
twice a month, we'd run into a company we'd never heard of before. Like, I th- like, I mean, I'm already, I thought I'd been in the ecosystem. I thought I pretty much knew everyone, right? And some of these companies are like 20 person shops, right? So they're not, it's not like two people who are stealth. It's just like this company is just heads down doing their work, right? And just not attending events or not being very public. So what's really weird is that the environment here is actually I think people don't realize it's actually much bigger than most people realize. I don't even think we even know the number. I remember Zumwalt saying it's like somewhere between 300 and 700 small companies, right? Which is a really big range. To, and we're like, no one really knows for sure. Cause like, like even at, like I said, at Evolve U, like literally once or twice a month, we'd run into a company that's like a 20 person shop that has a product that's outselling, that's making money that we'd never heard of before. Right. Yeah. That's very true. <laughs> but I guess it's, you know, people tend to be, like you said, heads down trying to figure stuff out and they don't just don't, don't have time to get out there and market. And sometimes they don't want people to know they exist yet because they're busy trying to make something happen. Obviously they would probably want investors and in that to know they exist, but you kind of can't have one without the other. So. No, but I think they, I think, I mean, I think, I don't know if it's a chicken or egg, it's just because investments, it's hard that they choose to bootstrap. But a lot of companies here, whether because of choice or not, end up doing bootstrapping. And so because of that, they just stay heads down, they stay quiet. And so we don't always do ourselves the favor because I'm, I'm sure we have like, I mean, I know, you know, Mark and Toronto have all kinds of stuff going on, but I think there's more action here than people real, really realize, right? We kind of get painted with this oil and gas brush. But there's, you know, hundreds of people kind of quietly working in the, you know, tech and innovation scene doing cool things. Yeah, that's, I believe you 100%. <laughs> well, Heiko, thank you very much for taking your time out of your busy day to speak with me today. I'm sure it was a long awaited conversation for a lot of people in the rainforest. They'd probably love to hear more about who that Heiko guy is that they see all the time. But you know what? It was, it was, it was great talking to you. Awesome. Thank you, Lance, for letting me rant. no problem at all all right everyone tune in next week tuesday mornings at eight o'clock is when the new episode drops so if you're interested in becoming a sponsor a host or a guest of the rainforest podcast please reach out and you can go to libby.ca l-i-b-i.ca for any information regarding the show have a great one everyone cheers if you haven't already visit rainforestab.ca and sign the Rainforest Social Contract. Become part of the inclusive, silo-busting, sector-agnostic, all-industry, open-sourced, ego-shrinking, ecosystem-building, entrepreneur-focused, wide-open, social barrier-smashing community known as Rainforest Alberta. This episode was brought to you by New Idea Machine. We build great custom software while bridging the gap between education and experience. New Idea Machine makes your ideas real. Visit newideamachine.com for more info. Music for the show was created by Tony Deldegan. Please be sure to share this episode with everyone you know. Also, don't forget to come by and say hi at the next Rainforest event. Let us know what you think of this podcast. If you're interested in being either a host, sponsor, or a guest of the show, send me an email at rainforestpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.